Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. So did you just call, or did he call us? Oh, I, I, I dialed into him. He's just not there yet. That's fine. Well, he's probably been in and gone. He's just probably because he's terribly mad off. Is there some evidence that he's been there? Yeah, well, the, the best evidence I have is that the uh, last time I tried to connect about 10 minutes ago, there still wasn't any connection. Yeah, yeah. there he is. Okay. Hello, Professor Spooner. Hello, how are you? Fine, thank you. So are we streaming uh, yet, Tom? We're in business. We're good to go. Yeah. So uh, we're live on the World Wide Web. It's uh, November 29, 2006. This is the final class of this round of money, culture, and globalization. And uh, we're very fortunate tonight to have uh, a number of guests who I hope will bring together a number of the uh, topics and themes and show some resolution of some patterns. The theme tonight is uh, focused on Tibet and the relationship between China and Tibet. Uh, I've been talking with uh, Professor Hilary Rodrigues of the Religious Studies Department about doing a particular class on the subject of religion and globalization. So uh, be beyond the special case studies that we're looking at tonight, I think it appropriate to uh, reflect, perhaps in the course of the evening, on larger issues about how religious politics is engaged with globalization, different processes of globalization. So Professor Rodriguez will comment on the presentation of the two main presenters this evening. The main presenter is Kay Sung. And Kay Sung is born in Tibet. Her passport says 1942, but actually born 1937 in Tibet. There's a very simple and basic idea, which uh, we put out as the focus of tonight's class. Uh, when Dr. Tailfeathers and Kay Sung went to Calgary to apply for a visa, in order to get that visa, Kay Sung was asked, to fill in the space of her country of birth. And of course, Kaesong would fill in Tibet as her country of birth. And the Chinese authorities said, well, there really is no Tibet. You're born in China. So that is the question which has, uh, I guess, filled Kaesong, I think I can say, with a certain sense of uh, indignation that she wants to address this, has made a point that she wants to address this. 
Kaesong left uh, Tibet as a refugee, three months going through the mountains, at the same time as uh, the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, around that same period. And Kaesong has met the Dalai Lama many times, went and lived in India for many years, and, and began living in Canada in 1971. Kaesong is a physiotherapist at uh, the Cardston Hospital, and Kaesong works with Dr. Tailfeld. And I, as I see it, Kaesong has become something of a mentor for Dr. Tailfeather. And so the two of them were uh, planning this trip for some time when Esther Tailfeather's uh, when last you saw Esther preparing to go to Tibet. And we had some discussion about uh, the fourth world ideas and uh, some discussion about how one might look at the relationship of Tibet to China and think about the parallels, the similarities and possibly the differences the position of Blackfoot in relationship to Canada, and both societies find themselves uh, disqualified, in a sense, from being able to participate in the international uh, venues and forums on the basis of fully recognized sovereignty. So uh, many of you wrote your test questions in the midterm test. Dr. Tell said this was actually a question describing gives the significance of and. A, I, I tried to connect her work at the uh, Blood Tribe Health Clinic with notions of the fourth world. And uh, so it's with great pleasure that uh, Esther, i um, introduce you once again to Esther, to Dr. Tailfeathers. And so uh, she's now returned from Tibet, and Dr. Tailfeathers will... Uh, show slides of her trip. Of course, she didn't have to face this question. Her position of birth, her country of birth, was not a controversial issue for the Chinese authorities in Calgary. So, Dr. Tailfeathers has been to Tibet, and uh, and uh, Kei Song went as far as Tibet, but then did not go into Tibet. As I understand it, their journey from Nepal to India, and then Esther's final leg to um, Tibet was along a route where there were many monasteries, and they mostly stayed in Buddhist monasteries. And so, of course, in the Tibetan government, there is a, a marriage of church and state, a, probably the most famous theocracy on the planet, uh, probably the oldest theocracy on the planet. And so, these are themes that uh, should we should have the opportunity for a good discussion. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez will, will comment when the first two presenters have uh, held forth. And I look forward to some uh, uh, lively discussion, and I think we have all the ingredients here for a lively discussion on that subject. So without further ado, Kei-Sung, thank you so much for coming in this evening. And uh, if I can be any, in a, any help in the document camera, if you want to show pictures, I'll just sit here and and take it away. Okay, thank you. Um, my name is Kesang. 
And uh, I thank you to Tony, Professor Tony, but I would like to correct um, my title at my work as assistant physiotherapist. However, we won't go very far. That's how I, that's my title. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me. Um, counting as a Canadian, recognized as a Canadian human being. Now, I like to talk, uh, and anybody can stop me and ask questions. If you like, feel free. Um, I might get quite emotional, but you have to bear with me. And uh, my real thought is I refuse to say I was born in China. I do not speak Chinese. I do not write Chinese. Uh, Tibetan reading written letter is completely different than Chinese letter. And I'm sure many of you do know Chinese, which I don't know. For that reason, we have um, tolerated this Chinese oppression, the uh, communist system, 47 years. It's too long to keep quiet. Now I'm in Canada, I'm Canadian. They don't accept me. Um, I have to speak out for the six million Tibetans in Tibet have suffered 47 years. They are suffering, dying every day. Nobody noticed. We talk about Iraq, but we never ever hear throughout China. Or Chinese mainlines are also suffering. Do they have a voice? They don't have a voice. So it's the Tibetans. Worse. Tibetans in Tibet, they don't have a voice. They're simply saying, free Tibet, you're jailed. You disappear, your whole body. You're not asked, you're not allowed to ask, what happened to my mom, what happened to my daughter, or my husband. You're disappeared, you're, the whole family will disappear. That's been happening ever since 1959. Last few years, in 1981, I did go back once the Chinese Communist, the door opened to this world. 1981, the same passport as I'm a Canadian, they didn't reject me, they didn't tell me I have to be Chinese. They let me go there, got the visa, went to Lhasa, and they kept me there for nine days, for no reason, but I had to have a road permit. If the Chinese come to Canada, stop at the Toronto, you get permit. What do you think? To get to your rural areas. Or you come landed in Vancouver or Calgary. So you require about you asking the same things to me. I stopped for nine days in Lhasa. Finally they let me a road permit, which took me about six hours by Jeep that I rented from the Communist Chinese office. Went to my village. The day when I left my personal belongings, couple hundred heads of cows, about ten, ten horses that given to my, by my uh, father and my house and my land. Totally we left, I left there, walked away with, on a path back without anything. That was 1959. When I went back, my house was destroyed, flowers stuck up, my altars with my dad belt all gone. My sister was wearing clothes that has no clothes, she's on pads over pads. She has lice all over her body. 
I was there. I can hardly recognize her. She's only about two years between me and her. When I went there, I said, she's going to pass out. So everybody in that town, so all the monasteries is totally destroyed. Nunneries gone. All the government properties totally destroyed. All their Chinese soldiers. They watch me every step what I do, what I say. I have to watch what I say. So now coming back, now, year 2006, globalization didn't help. It worked for the Tibetans. Right now that you think it's Tibetan problem, but this problem will be world problem. Because it's happening in Nepal. Mao's party in Nepal, they managed to form Mao Party, so they become government opposition in Nepal. If you don't believe me, go and check yourself. It's there, it's existed now. So that's coming stronger. What they do, they go to business people to say, we need donation, 100,000 Nepalese. If you don't have, well, I'm going to burn your building. They have done that. They destroy the bus, they beat up the bus drivers, destroy all the belongings. This kind of globalization is not good for our future. It took about 100 years for the Chinese invade that we had nice relationship of with China, like our people, like Turkey, Chinese silk, years back throughout the history. Where that leads to invasion through the trade. Is that we're going to wait until then? We keep having more bigger trade. I think it'll be too late. It'll be too messy. Right now, the Tibetans are suffering their minority in Tibet, and they're destroying the land, destroying the, all the trees. Farmers, they, they don't know enough of the fertilizers. They give them fertilizers. You have to put them this. If you don't, then we take them away. They punish them. The farmers, they have to give them, they, they pay tax, whether you have got enough seed or not, they don't care, so they go hungry. This is it's the time for me to speak up, and I hope the Chinese people need to stop. This is a lot for the Tibetan people and the rest of the country. You can't ruin this. They are human beings. My own uncle, they killed by working hard, make them to work without any food and everything, anything. Make them say, you have to plow the raw land. He taught, they taught at him months and years and years. About 10, 20 years later, he died, he threw up, and he was home and nothing else left in his life. No, he didn't last He threw up and he... Just before he died, they threw him outside the jail, and, that, and then he's gone. This is East Tibet, is central Tibet area. So I'm speaking about today. His oldest Dalai Lama is in India, in exile. We discussed him. He he always liked. He believes in non-violence. We respect that. Which is, this is him. I'm sure many of you have seen him, and he's a very um, non-violent person. 
Chinese doesn't even allow to have pictures of him. His pictures with people who live in Tibet. You're punished. Now, this kind of um, mentality, do we want to pray? Uh, like, I always get discouraged. And uh, I'd like to show the um, map of Tibet before Chinese invaded. Now, further disturbing, it really upset me. Chinese, they, they're decreasing the map of Tibet, getting smaller and smaller. They do change the name. Why can't they use existing names? What is behind that? Why is they changing the name? They try to say that, well, there's no such as a Tibet. Well, you can't revise the world's history. Tibet always been Tibet there. We had a king, our own. We had our own nationality. We had our own stuff. We were, we were harmless people. We don't bother anybody. We were self-sustained group of people. We're harmless. We have minerals in the ground. We do know it has to be kept under the ground. So you have to, you don't have to supplement when you eat the food. This is how our ancestors taught us. So now time is taking everything, taking away. Animals in, in Tibet, they're not even around anymore. They killed them all. The trees, they would never allow them to cut them down. They cut them 24 hours. Last 47 years that they have been cutting them down. What they have developed, nothing. Try to press us down. Is that, is this a human right? I'm, I'm pleased the Prime Minister spoke up about the human rights. It's our time to speak up the human rights. It's too late to wait till it's here. If this system comes in here, we will be pretty messy. They will not walk away like he did. I did. I walked away simply with nothing but myself, my soul. Escape because his holiness was able to escape. If he wasn't able to escape, I won't be able to. The Indian government was very helpful to accommodate us. Then the rest of the world sent us the aid, for aid to survive us. So I was able to go to school, which is disrupted by the communist Chinese. Six million people. Life has been disrupted enough. It's long enough for 47 years. So now they continue to do this. I'm here in a free country. What is it? We went about six years ago. I went to Tibet. Same thing. There is no reason was given by the government of uh, China. You have you came here with the foreigners. So I said, we are foreigners. Well, you're not supposed to come with the foreigners. What am I supposed to say? This is too far and it's too, too many times. And today and throughout the world, you ask anybody, they are afraid of to speak up. They are afraid, I do have my relatives. I have my younger sister. I haven't seen her for 47 years. I have no communication. I don't even know whether she's still alive or not. Why they they're able to do this kind of nonsense there our government continuously go trade going on, which is a wonderful thing, but look what they are doing the other end, try to build up animations. I'm sure they are, I'm not saying that they are good Chinese people. They work hard, they, they are good people there too. But at the same time, when these things are going on, the Tibetans, we don't even have a 
histories, how they killed, how many times we have, we, uh, my ancestors have no funerals as such. Not even, doesn't even matter where the dead bodies are. How did they kill? How many times have they killed? Which did they killed? How have they died? There's no history by the Chinese government. They don't require because us try to keep quiet because we're so afraid of hurting our families more. They can't hurt any more than now. It doesn't matter if they come and get it, get it on me, fine. I'm ready for it. This is enough to keep quiet. Now, the, Chinese, the uh, Canadian government should be able to do the same thing to the Chinese every time you ride to, to Vancouver or Toronto in Calgary, get another permit to come to rural areas. Let them pay but another thousand dollars. Then what? You won't be coming to Canada, would you? I came to Canada, it wasn't my choice. I was deputy. If I had a country like it today, I wouldn't be here. Not that I'm saying that Canada is bad. Wonderful country, wonderful people. People are willing to help you, to educate you. Then you turn around and it's like 9-11. People turn around and that bomb them. I'm not that kind of people. My Tibetan people are not that kind of people. We are too genuine, taken in by the common sense. It's linked by this trade with the China. Years, many years by the ancestors. They are too genuine people. Now I'd like to talk this. This book has been published by the prisoners who escaped from Tibet to communist Chinese. It's called Dejin Sobe Denshi. That means Dejin means it's the truth. Dejin is what I'm achieving to free Tibet. That's what he, he was jailed because he wouldn't accept to say Tibet belongs to China. The same reason they did, they refused to give me the visa. So these people been, this is one of the many thousands of people died in this jail. One person wrote this book, and he, he died for one same reason. He refused to say, I'm Chinese, but Tibet belongs to China. He refused that he has every right, every right. He is a man for me. He's a hero for me. There are many of them dying. They're still dying in Tibet. Nobody knows. There are lots of jails built in Lhasa. The jails are not even livable. Worse than an animal in this country. That needs to be stopped. We're not allowed to ask. They're not allowed to speak to anybody. You have to speak behind the curtains all the time. Why is this happening? Even now. Why are the Chinese government so strong, such a powerful, they say. But you can't ignore these things. It's going to be world power. Problems will be world problems. Like 9-11 was in these states. Thank goodness they're getting back in Iraq when this 9-11 shouldn't have, shouldn't happen. Americans said they have to educate. You have to turn back and shoot them. You don't do that. If you are so clever and smart and educated, you stay in your own country, developed. You can do that. Throughout China, go and look around and talk to the farmers. How many of them are suffering? Now, I have myself, I haven't been there. 
I've seen many documentaries. They are going through terrible times. You never allowed to see them. Why? Why not? Why the Tibetan still has to suffer? So you are allowed to have only six months in the monastery, or then five months in the nunnery. Why you have to decide for somebody else's life? Because you have done too many times, too long, far too long for the Tibetan. And also at invaded at Mongolia and everywhere else, you have done the same thing for too long. Country enough to, to stop this. Young people, you have to wake up. Doesn't matter who you are. Everybody has the goodness in your soul, matter of how you practice. You don't have to be rude all the way long. It's a time to stop it. They can go back to China, leave the Tibetans alone, let them handle themselves. They've been doing this many, many generations, hundreds, thousands of years. They will manage without China. These people who are dying in jail, it's not fair why they have to die in jail for one reason to say, I'm not, I wasn't born in China. You know why? Because they totally try to destroy. If I die, my younger generation, they would have no clue how the dead was. So take away from the, from the map, shrunk the map, then smaller and smaller and smaller and change the name, substitute Chinese name. The name is already there. What's wrong with that? Leave the names alone. Then you have, when you have a trade, you have a trade in a proper manner. Not this way. Brutal is enough. You go to, in, in Russia, I like to let the doctor tell her this, the First Nation lady, doctor, First Nation person, I like her to speak in, uh, about her trip. And anybody has any questions, she can ask. Anybody want to ask a question or make an observation at this point? Sure. I was just wondering, like, uh, see the Chinese government controls Tibet, right? So how do they, do they have a separate, like, type of Chinese government just for Tibet, or is it just everything is run through China and stuff like that? You guys would have to find a way of communicating, right? Well, Tibet is an, a nation itself, hey. okay, yeah. until 1959. Actually, Chinese government took the part of East Tibet land way back shortly after World War I, oh. and where the Chinese panda so-called is, they said that belongs to Tibet. Okay. Okay, then they came up a little bit more, a little bit more. Then they came to East Tibet. It's called, we call it the East, East, East Tibet. They took that away. Then gradually, in 1959, they took Central Tibet. Does that answer your question? Because it's a two entities, two separate, two totally separate uh, countries. You think about the U.S., what do you think America will come and run this country? Like my, the, my question is, like, it's, yes, I understand that Tibet is a separate, like, like it's, it's a separate country, right? But right. Is China doing anything to communicate with it, or just, just 
They're just controlling it just by using violence and force. They have done gradually and they by force. 1959, actually, yes. They, they, they shot us. They, they're shooting us. They don't care how they shoot you. Um, by force, yes. Okay, so they, they invade us. They, yes. So, so they don't, so Tibet has no sense of government or anything. It's just trying to just control it using violence and force. Now the uh, government is exiled in India. Okay. Uh, because we escaped 1959 when Esri Salman Lama, when he escaped, we escaped with uh, quite few of us when we were able to. Some of them caught on the way. They took them back, tortured them, killed them. And there's no, uh, no history written. Nothing is documentary. This is something when young people, when doesn't matter good or bad, when it happens, should be able to produce how did they kill people. Either your people or my people or hers or his doesn't matter. You should have history, don't you think? I agree with that, yeah. In Germany or the, the world war, when all these horrible things happened there, Nazi problems, they, how they died, they gas chamber, whatever, the horrible things happened. The document is there. Why, where the Tibetans have no document, they are not allowed to. I hope I'm wrong. I hope the communist Chinese do have a document one by one. I like to see how many people are alive there. Six million people by, by nine, as of 1959. Six million people. We have no idea how many people got killed. They destroyed mentally, physically. Do you know how they destroyed mentally? Do you know how people destroy mentally? They destroy, they take away everything when you belong, your belonging. Let's think about the one house. Take away your household, take them away, put it to the office. You have nothing. You might have a, a plate and a knife and fork if you're lucky. That's it. Okay. Then next day you'll say, they'll call you to a meeting. If you open your mouth, I want this right, you're gone. They, they've been selling the human organs as well. And this is time to be stopped. And there's no proof. Of course, if somebody will come and say, prove it. How you can prove it? The government is not allowed to. The documentary was done in the state. Twice. The state government won't allow. They didn't believe the first one. The second one they done. It's well documented. And they're doing well. Uh, it's fine. Because lots of them are hardworking people there. Which is fine. But time to stop this or suffering other people try to become somebody else's wealthy. This is enough. Thank you for your question. This sort of picture, is this LaSalle that I've heard Yes, it's called Patala. And you said there's Palace. a lot of prisons in LaSalle? A lot of, uh, yes. According to this um, man, um, there's a lot of prisoners, even recently people coming, quite a few Westerners are allowed to go to that area. Uh, prisoners, a uh, lot of them are they, around the Fadala area, which they, um, there's no longer uh, pleasant like before, at the, all nothing but buildings, and around the Fadala area, they 
all military compound. You're watched constantly, 24 hours. When you go to to Lhasa and throughout Tibet, I don't know many times I haven't been there yet. Someday I like to go and visit, but uh, I don't know if I dare if they let me or not. But throughout throughout Tibet, especially around in Lhasa, Uzan the area, they very rich. Why do you have? Why did the government of China have something to hide from from the rest of the world? This is the Bodhila, is he called this Dalai Lama's uh, palace, summer palace, and which part they have destroyed that. This has been rebuilt by their own people's money. When they rebuild it a little bit, and the government gets the credit. And then there's Nobulinga, further down there's a palace, and of course he told this Dalai Lama's another palace there is for um, summer palace. And as uh, Dr. Esther Taylor this will explain how what is going on in this palace at this time, because I haven't been there recently. Shall we invite Dr. Tailfeathers up now, uh, or do you have more to say? Uh, to sure. If anybody else has any questions, yes, sir. Uh, I actually uh, got a few weeks ago that uh, the place already. I'm trying to uh, change the name of the place. Yes. Uh, the so provinces and the names of the places, the provinces, okay. like Amdo, they don't call Amdo anymore, which I don't remember because I don't know how to pronounce the Chinese. Right. And then uh, on the map, when I notice any map, new world map is coming out, I see that it's shrunk smaller and smaller all the time. Okay. Right, because uh, uh, so far as I know, because like we. We do. We don't understand uh, your language. Like you, you don't understand Chinese. Okay. So that that's that's basically what I see. I'm not sure how how badly they change the name, or it's just like the translation, or just because the pronunciation. So because like uh, in, in Canada, we we are using like uh, Chinese names to address cities too. Okay. So. Perhaps you can help me in this issue because why is the Chinese called Canada then? Is that because the translation Canada? Wait, which one, sorry? Canada in Chinese. Yes. You call Canada, not Canada. Is that your language? Because should you translate it? Yeah, because uh, you do know how to say Canada, right? Yes, yes. But like, uh, not, Why? Not, not everybody speaks English. And they don't know how to properly pronounce that name. Yeah, but that's, that's why it's a learning thing. Because I didn't know how to say Canada before I came to Canada. Because I have no word of English when I left Tibet. Perfect. So I learned how to say England. I do know how to say Canada. Yeah, sure. That that's, that's actually makes sense. What, what, okay. what I'm trying to say is when people heard actually an, a Canadian mm-hmm. say, say that I'm from Canada, they know exactly where it's from. And we only, well, you know, for the people who doesn't speak English, right. all they can write down is, is, the, is actually the, the, the Chinese name for Canada. It doesn't mean that we're not trying to change anything. But but don't you think that you, if your people try to educate it as a Western way? If so, then why don't we learn correctly? I like to learn. I, I'm glad when somebody corrects my English. If you want to learn Canadian way, then you come to Canada, learn how to speak like the Canadian, Western way. 
Isn't it how my perception, of course my perception could be wrong. This is how I think. If we come to this Canada, to this land, we came to Canada knowing English. So I have to learn how to say English, how to say the English way. I think if Canada is, to me, is an English word. For me, that, 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 that is true, because uh, when, I, when I talk to, like, my classmates here, when I speak Canada, I speak Canada, mm-hmm. I do not use the Chinese saying. Okay. So, like, what, what I'm trying to say is, a lot of Chinese people, that they don't speak English. Right, they are, I agree. They, they probably never, ever have a chance to go to Canada. Right. And they, they, they don't, they probably suffer their whole life and don't know English words. So, you know, how... how can you expect them to speak like Canada? Like Maybe I could mention here. Uh, um, since we're having this discussion, um, can you give us some insight? How, how would it be taught? How would the history of Tibet be taught or presented in Chinese education system? Well, basically, so far as I know, um, this, this, this part of history is not quite clear to me. Well, maybe, maybe because I'm a bad student when I was high schooler. But, yes, it's like a lot of part of history, because, you know, uh, history is, like, quite big, and we can only cover a certain part of it. So we, we probably don't have a lot of chance to... Press it. I don't think you're on the screen. Okay. Yeah. There. Yeah. Cause we... over. Give us a... I'm interested in this answer. <laughs> yeah, well, because... Um, I, I'm not quite sure about this, this part of history. That's why I'm trying to do, do Google to search. Because uh, when, I, when I was in high school, because I don't, I, don't, I don't remember, like, well, because I, I don't know about history, but yeah, that part, I don't think we covered, like, uh, a whole lot of information. Like, for instance, in Canada, I don't think there's a lot of education about treaties. Yeah. Indian treaties. How many people in. Treaty 7, even though they're in Treaty 7. How many would have any idea of when Treaty 7 was made and what were the, the circumstances? Uh, treaty would indicate that there is some agreement, some sharing of jurisdiction, some Correct. meeting of two sovereign qualities who voluntarily come okay. together. But then you can uh, obliterate uh, legal understanding simply by by failing to incorporate it in the education system if it doesn't if it doesn't exist in the imagination of people, in the consciousness of people, it's a way to extirpate it. And so as you talk about that when you say there's sort of a blank about Tibet in terms of how how you remember the education it might might that be a similar phenomenon? It could be. It could be it could be like just just like uh just like the citizens here, or just like to the government too, because you know they, when when they are trying to trying to design the education, the material, you know, could be uh, there's something going on there. I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure, but all all I, all I know is that uh, you know um, it, it is quite quite sad when when you actually you know told us the story because that part we we really don't understand a lot. We don't know a lot. Especially for us, because we are, we are not actually, we, were, we weren't born back then, so we don't even have more, you know, understanding about that. Not even that, like, uh, uh, well, we call it 
in Chinese name Wu Da Lagong. That's what we call that picture, the palace. I think it's close enough because when, when you say that name, I understand. I know exactly where it is, and all I know is it, it's it's just been there for for a long time. I I never know it's it's been rebuilt. So yeah. My impression is uh, China is quite secular. That the part of the communist ideology that says religion is a kind of superstition and uh, is some uh, archaic aspect of remnant of some less evolved era. Uh, that's my impression that that uh, China, generally speaking, is quite secular. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? I know I've heard the religious studies professors uh, who uh, are interested in Confucius or Tao or, um, and, and say it's hard to get uh, Chinese students interested to take course in, uh, in religious studies. It might be a topic that we could uh, handle, you know. Something, something uh, to give uh, some comfort and safety, eh? because it, people should not feel exposed to any danger here. Yeah. Uh, about religion, I, I remember the one once we talked to each other. I showed you the small things from uh, uh, a monk. In a temple, right? <laughs> Quite interesting. And I do work with them once, actually twice. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, people, they believe in different things. They don't talk about it. That means they don't believe it. Or they never thought about it. We have, we can, we have the agency to choose what we can talk and what we don't want to talk. But the thing is, is the God is in your heart. It's not a picture or something. If the God is a person who is knocking your door, then you are the person who should open the door or you decide not open the door. I don't know like how to teach religions here and I learned some Buddhism from talking to monks, from going to uh, some Buddhism mountains and where there are like hundreds temples. And I feel like people, even though monks, they may, they may not uh, worship every day, but what they have is the wish and then it's kind of intelligent. They don't tell people, I'm the scholar, you know, religion studies. But through talking to them, you can really learn something. That's my personal opinion. I was uh, very uh, surprised in going to the Great Hall in the middle of Tiananmen Square where the uh, corpse, where the body of Mao rests in state. And as you go into the Great Hall, and I think Ling Ling, you organized a wedding of a thousand people there or something. Yeah, yeah, we do. We, we organized twice. The group wedding. Yes. One in 1999, there were 500 couples, so married together. Same day, but it, that was not 
on Tiananmen Square. Like in 2000, we did a thousand couples got married. So when you come into the central um, Great Hall in the middle of Tiananmen Square, there's a, a large picture, a large uh, statue of Mao, in, and, and he's sitting in a chair, looking quite relaxed. Uh, people bring their flowers in and lay the flowers in a in a mark of respect. Uh, but it seems to me that it was almost as if it was a veneration to a religious figure. It, it almost had the feeling that Mao has taken on a kind of um, image of a of, of a of a of a divine kind of figure. And I, I do believe a student at the University of Beijing, I heard her refer to Mao as a Buddha Buddha. Is that possible? That like it's a kind of nickname of his, uh, Buddha Buddha. I feel like you can interpret God in different ways, right? It just totally depends how we decide it. Like, don't laugh. <laughs> And then, like, China Mao, I think I, I was working with uh, some paragorillas from Xinjiang province. So they, are, they, they are retired right now. They have special feelings about China Mao. And uh, when I first time give that uh, group of people a tour in on Tiananmen Square, after they visit them, and then some old people, <laughs> they told me, I never thought I can see China Mao while I'm alive, you know. And then for them, China Mao is a great hero because he leads people to establish the new China. But I don't know, like, I'm not a religious person. I don't know too much about religious studies. <coughs> how I see about a hero, about a God, about God from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. so. May I say something on that? First of all, I like to ask young men. As you said that in China you can't teach them how to say proper way in English terms. If they are willing to learn, I think it's about time for them to learn. So if either way is not fair because the they will know one. We are all way of those places names. So the young generation will only get to know Chinese names. Which means, to me, the Chinese government's plan is to wipe up that history totally next few hundred years from now. Otherwise, like your problem is say, well, I don't know how to say Canada, so I call you Tatata. Well, I don't know how to say Mr. Mr. Wright, so I'll call you what? Mr. Wu? That, that doesn't write. First of all, don't even bother learning writing if you're not willing to learn. You know? But you know what I'm saying? What is all education about? Learn something else, different. How to say it, what to do, writing. They're talking about the Buddhist, this young lady was saying, how to think. The reason the Tibetan Buddhists, we don't go and teach others. Unless somebody asks, come and ask. The reason have a monastery, nunneries, uh, have a monks and, and the lamas and tugus, because they, their whole life they study whether this is the right thing we are doing or not. What they're saying is how to teach us how to think correctly, how to do things right, moral right. 
morally right? Is it right to invade somebody else's property? Is it morally right to take away their rights? Forty-seven bloody years you have taken more rights for six million people. It is enough time to stop by the by your government. And I'm not sure whether you are Chinese communist or not. It doesn't matter. I respect whoever you are. But I know, as you said, you weren't born. It's about time to learn. It's right and wrong. Everybody knows right and wrong. When you invade, you try to ignore. Doesn't matter. And these people are saying, "Let's free Tibet. Get rid of this." Okay. Killed one, two, buried them all. They don't even count how many dead bodies out there. Don't you think that is wrong? Do you think it's for us wrong to say free Tibet? So wrong demanding our own rights? Yes, in Canada, we're not going to destroy your property. We're asking simply telling the other people to say what is our right? Who are we, how, how we are, who we are, where the country was. Tibet is a huge country, a huge land, never was developed because we, we are minding our own business and try to do a little bit of enough to eat, how to live ourselves in peaceful manner. So now it's a done deal, but time to stop it. Time to stop it. You can't continuously going on and killing those people day and night. You are not even allowed to speak to the free today. Look at in Hasa. They're not allowed to demonstrate anymore. They're not allowed to say, but he's all in his Dalai Lama. That prohibited. Then, last few years, after the 9-11, they used the name of the terrorists. We're not terrorists. We're not capable. We're not taught to be terrorists. We appreciate Canadian government, Canadian people, to educate us. We are not that kind of people. The Chinese government in, in, in Calgary told me, oh, because we are afraid of the terrorists. Pardon me? I was shocked calling, using the name of the terrorists and get practicing into our China against my people, threatened people. That is so wrong. Then you have wonderful, this game is coming up, and you have this try to deny all the Tibetans how skills and try to selectively let some tourists go to Tibet so you can make money from them. And yet we are innocent people. We have so hard. They kept our passport three weeks. The day when we went and we were ready to leave, the, the flight was ready to leave within four days. Oh, we can't issue. You have to say uh, you bought in China. I refuse to do that. I'm sorry. That is enough. Why do I have to lie? Why the government has tried to plan to tell people a lie? That is lying. And it cost me twice as more money to get another visa to go to India because you have to testify this time to Vancouver. This kind of mental hardness has been going on, ongoing, not only me. Millions of Tibetans are suffering. And thank you for listening, but you can think 
whatever you, whichever you wish, you can think, but it's religion. They say, well, Tibetan people are too much religion. There's nothing too much or too little. little. All these, like he told the Dalai Lama said, you don't have to change your religion as such. All your moral, moral implication is important. Think correct. Respect your parents. Do things right. Don't do the drugs. Which we didn't have a problem in Tibet before. Now they do. And we're glad that the Tibetans are doing those wrong things that they're happy to see them because they can get rid of those Tibetan society as such who are minority in Tibet. But it's going to be worse. It'll be, it'll be here sometime. It took that long to get to Tibet. Yes, sir. Hello. Uh, just a two-part question. One, um, if someone was born in Lhasa today, would you say they were born in China or Tibet? And two, just wondering how you, what, what you'd like to see in the future with respect to China and Tibet and the situation in the country. One, at the moment, I think they, the Chinese, for sure, they will say they, they have to say Chinese. Because they are controlling right now, since 1959, which they, those newborn babies, they have no rights. They can speak up. The parents don't have a right. So therefore, that's not going to be... They're not even allowed to say free Tibet. Oh, they won't allow. Well, of course. I think that, that if I have a right, yes, I like to say I'm, I was born in Tibet, in Lhasa. Well, well not, not, not in your case so much okay. as if someone was born today in Lhasa. Yeah, I understood that, yes. Um, and it says on the birth certificate born in China. Do you think that's false? You think they're in fact born in that place? Yes. Because we are working to get the country back. Of, of, of course, I okay. understand that. So yeah. therefore, yes, Tibet people, the land belongs to the Tibetan people. Right. So you still okay. And the second part of the I question is, that way, yes. is what sort of constructive um, changes you think that should should occur. Uh, you know, change happens in stages or steps. I'm just wondering what you would like to see happen. I'd like to see happen. The Chinese government did promise to his holiness when he was 16 years old. It's been documented to say they will develop the country three years. Within three years, we will go back to China. I'd like to see, see that one happening. And why not happen? It could happen. And they can develop in China whatever they may like to do without Tibet. Um, earlier you were saying that our generation is responsible in order to make a change, and I'm just wondering what the average Canadian, uh, what practical measures we could take in order to help the Tibetan cause. Like, I wouldn't even know where to begin, so I'm wondering if you have any suggestions as to where someone would even start with that. I think politically you can influence the politicians, the corporations, uh, in a way that when you trade, you can do percentage trade with any any country. In Canada, it's a huge land that people can see, and we can develop. And a lot of Canadians are well-educated. They go elsewhere to use their knowledge. You can influence to the, become a politician. You can be next prime minister. <laughs> and... Uh, so uh, you can do many ways. Uh, this way it will protect this country, a nation, um, and other countries, and as well as Tibet. 
And I like to see Tibet, although they have mines, they have ruined that country huge way, but nobody knows. But I do. I've been there. I was born there. I was traveling lots of it in this area that I hear that all the animals get killed, name of under medicine. They use those animals killed one by one, making oodles of money shipped to China. And the trees cut the weed. We don't allow, we preserve lots of trees. Certain area that it make a pilgrimage. And that's been all destroyed now. And all the mining, when the mining is done, lots of people get killed. No words. How they die, that's not right. When you mine everything out of your ground, so we supplement, put the vitamins back. Well, our generation, our ancestors don't believe that. So you keep the minerals underground, so therefore your nutrients is there, natural way. Uh, so you can do many ways. Thank you for your question. Um, I'm just wondering if you see anything in the future, or if you would like to see something in the future of um, Western countries or the United Nations going in and actually doing something about this. Um, after what has been happening in Iraq, where the Americans have said that they are liberating them, um, there's, to me there's a lot of questions with that. Um, is that something you'd want to see happen? Um, say an American, country, you know, American uh, government sending troops in, you know, to do some liberating, as they say. Um, is there something that you'd like to see Western countries or um, even the rest of the world do something to help people? And go to war with China? That, that's what I'm saying. Like, you're not going to go to war with China. Like, like, maybe is that why nobody's done anything? Is they have a huge army? Like, you know, you're not going to go to war with China. Is there something like that you'd like to see the rest of the world do? Mm-hmm. You know, yes, like, I understand what you're saying. Right. I respect the. Um, uh, I don't respect the war, but sometimes they don't give you options. 9/11 shouldn't happen. Nobody was prepared. Nobody was expecting. Those young men who did those horrible things, they, they trained in the States, and the States people, the Americans, and they uh, tried to train them, tried to become knowledgeable, bomb you back, uh, which I think that is a terrible thing, a terrible mistake. So therefore, if you're president, I think, what is your option? Go back, haunt them, I think. I think he, he has the right to do that in order to protect the public of trade uh, sanctions or in the, in the U.S. Now, speaking in Tibet, I, I, don't, I do not wish the war because it kills many thousands, thousands of people and with the innocent victims as well. But is there any other easy way answer? Probably no, but it could be. The Chinese can stay with the worst men by men, not a woman. In Asia, you have the strict men and women thing. So, however, respectfully, they can keep their words. So when he told us, was 16 years old, oh, we'll come in and develop that country in three years and we'll go back. I've got the tape. They can keep their word and go back to China. We can still have a trade. That's fine. No problem. Because it's done hundreds of thousands of years ago. The trade links with the invasion. There's something that as a young people, you have to be aware what you're really doing or what your politicians are doing. Because you, uh, and it could be a lot worse than Iraq war. Right now we think it's terrible, but the war is over there. It is terrible. I feel sorry 
But I respect how the U.S. is doing. They didn't, they didn't go there to fight. They came over there in the States to, to have the 9-11. This is the most terrible thing. That's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of us would question some of that. But So, if, yeah, if Americans, yeah, we respect Americans. So, um, and indir- indirectly, uh, the war is, should not be there. But maybe that's the only way you should have a war, so maybe we can get, get this better. But that's not my wish. If that's the only solution, the future generations can tell. The concept that is um, not so much of going into other countries and um, using uh, force and, and, you know, killing it and stuff like that to, um, but even America has done this in the past and Canada has done this where they're just expanding and they're taking over areas, you know, you know, to me it, that's, uh, it's, a, it's a concept that has been happening for centuries. Hmm. Um, I, I don't. I I had no idea what was what was happening in that, and this is very eye-opening to me. And I really appreciate you coming and telling us about that. Thank you. But uh, yeah. yes, yes, it's to uh, can Canadian done to the First Nations. I think First Nation is. I think they they do have a seat in the parliament, and regularly, not like in China. China do do have a in the parliament. It's better uh, there, but they. They decide and close doors the big decision already made, and then they, they use those people's names. And I, I don't think that's happening with the First Nation here in Canada. And it's, it's a terrible, yeah, they destroy their culture, um, uh, which, which is a terrible thing. But again, they're accepting that. They're saying, sorry, now we're going to build, we'll educate, and you will revise it. With whatever it has happened in the past, now they try to including try to build this country together, which is great, I think. Mystery was done in the past. It's enough. 1981. How many years ago? I was able to go to my village. Now 1906. I'm not allowed to go without saying I'm, I was born in China. That's wrong. That is, you can't even compare. Not even close if you compare how people are taken away. Because Americans, Canadians, or the British, when they have invaded, they always, yes, there's consequences. There's bad things happen. But at the same time, they taught some education, which I respect that. But it is time to stop. They stop torturing people. You don't see any more the torturing in Canada or those people invaded in U.S. Children went three countries after, after 100 years of invasion. But they're not telling them what to do anymore. These things make big difference. Shall we take a break? I know this has been emotional, difficult to absorb. So perhaps we could take a break for 10, 15 minutes. And after the break, we'll hear from Dr. Tail Feathers and Dr. Rodriguez. Okay. Thank you. I'm not sure on this floor.
Globalization, public health, and epidemics. No. I'm really just like pulling out a I was finding too. And I, I, well, I didn't know it was you. That we had an extension. So I was just like, how do you get off on I'd say, I'd say let's, let's just pair up. Pair up? Yeah. <sighs> Is it possible, like, to sit down while I do it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Will the camera sit over here? Like, if I sit down and do the slideshow from here? Okay, so I can sit right here. Okay, oops. I don't want to break anything. Okay, great. And then you can just play it. Easy. So I just, I just go ahead. This one, I think, is next. Okay, I want to skip that picture. There, okay. And then all I have to do is click on the arrow. That's okay, I'll just click on, click on there. Or right here. Okay. Right and left arrow. Okay, forward and back. Yeah. 
because oh, right. if, you, if you accidentally go too, too far, or try and do it too fast, it could be too and mold it together because it's so many different things, religion, mm-hmm. colonization, invasion, political, political powers, and individuals. This is this is a place to use those kind of terms, this kind of language. Yeah, and then the funny thing too is, uh, West. I mean, I mean, I'm Native American, but trained in Western medicine. But learning or use or following a dream, eh? Yeah, it's actually almost too unbelievable. Well, I encourage you to do the best you can to extend your articulation right up to that those kind of topics. I hope it just doesn't get lost and yeah. get disorganized. But if you think you can intervene and redirect me if I'm like going too far somewhere, uh, you can bring me back. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's get back into the swing of things here. Um, Dr. Tailfeathers uh, made a terrific contribution to the class uh, early on. Uh, on the subject of uh, colonization and Aboriginal health. And uh, Dr. Tellfeathers, um, I know, was uh, instrumental in bringing uh, Charles Weaselhead, Chief Weaselhead, to the table. Um, and uh, it's Dr. Tailfeathers who's brought Kaesung to the table. So you've really uh, contributed in a very major way to this class, Esther, and thank you so much and welcome back to the University of Lethbridge, and and it's great to see you uh, in your lecturing posture, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Okay, thank you, Tony. Uh, Thank you, class, for having me uh, this evening. I actually wasn't really going to be one of the main speakers. I thought I would follow and make a little bit of commentary, but um, I want to thank you, first of all, for having me in the class and also being able to partner with Kaesong on this issue, um, or actually it will turn into a number of issues which are in your line of studies. And um, it's so nice to see so many bright young minds out there um, willing to make some changes in what's happening in the world. Um, This is a long story, and I'm going to try to make it short. I know that it can be really difficult to meld all of the the issues together that we are discussing this evening. Um, Basically, the, the bottom question or the bottom line in this whole thing is is the um, the uh, issue of colonization and um, or invasion and also the issue of um, personal personal space and what's happening to individuals in um, in something in in states of colonization or um, of invasion and um, this is kind of an unusual way to begin because I'm um, I'm a First Nations, I'm from Blood, uh, Blood Reserve, which is part of the Blackfoot Nation, which is part of Treaty 7, which many of you may not know is part of the Southern Alberta area, and we treated with the federal government, um, which we talked about when, when uh, Chief um, Weaselhead spoke the last was here. Um, so my interest was in uh, finding out what was happening to other Indigenous people in the world and how the colonization process 
affect individuals and individuals' health because we did talk about that at the last were together. So um, I always had, an, had a question about what was happening in Tibet that had an interest in um, what's happening in, with indigenous people in other areas of the world. Um, but this actually started with a dream, and so we're talking a little bit about spirituality, so I will tell you a little bit about this because it's nice to follow things in a storyline pattern, and this is how the story happened. Um, actually, um, I had a dream early this spring, I think it was in April, and I dreamt that I was um, standing in a monastery, an empty monastery, and from one window of the mon- one window at the top of the monastery was a, um, a purple silk um, tapestry that was flying in the wind from one, um, one window to another. And from the next window next to it was a white, pure white silk tapestry that flew from one window to the other. And um, the first time I had the dream, I thought it was just a dream. I had the same dream about two weeks later, and, um, and basically the same except that the tapestries were hanging out a window and down a, a, a tall um, building and down the hillside, and um, I didn't recognize where that was or what that was, and so I had a, a talk with my father, and he told me that my mother and father, and they said you should really follow that dream and find out where that dream comes from. And I remember as a child pulling out National Geographic and taking a look at um, pictures of people from all over the world in National Geographic. And I remember looking at pictures of children in Tibet and people in Tibet. And I remember, I I, I think that's where that dream came from. So I I kept it for a while and thought about it. And one day I was in the grocery store in Cardston and a big lineup in the grocery store. And Kay was standing behind me. And we actually work together in the same hospital but don't know a whole lot about each other. So she's standing behind me and I said, Kay, where do you come from? And she said, I come from Tibet. I said, you come from Tibet? And she said, yeah, I come from Tibet. And I said, I've always wanted to go to Tibet. And she said, well, let's go. (laughs) So we started planning in um, probably May um, to go to Tibet. And she told me her whole story about having to, um, to leave her home, her family, um, all of their belongings, and and the love for the land that she grew up on. And um, I had an understanding of that in some ways because I've always lived in the area that my people have been. So I've always understood that I belong to the land here, I belong to this area. And to, to not envision myself living too long anywhere else in the world but in this area. So my heart went out to Kay because I thought she had a homeland and she had a people, she had a home, and everything else. But through the um, the process of invasion from uh, China into Tibet, she had to leave her home area in 1959, the same time as um, the Dalai Lama and all the other uh, exiles from Tibet left their homeland. And so the question arose to me, that arose to me was, what is the difference between people that are displaced, their in, uh, indigenous people displaced from their homeland, and... and made to set up um, camp or set up homes elsewhere in the world versus people that are in their homeland but have control or have been controlled by another state. Um, And what does this do to people's health? Because in my profession, my question is what's happening to the people in my community and, you know, how does this, how does it, um, how does the phenomenon of colonization uh, show itself in an individual's health? 
And we did talk about this the last uh, class that we had, that I felt that, and I think that, um, that when people do not have self-determination on an individual level, that each one of, each one of us has the ability to, to determine what happens to us in our lives and also determine what happens to us in our health. Um, and I think that the less control you have over the, um, the circumstances around your life and your home and the less um, self-determination on an individual level that you have, the, um, the unhealthier you are. And um, that phenomenon um, presents itself um, among my people as things like addictions, um, diabetes, many of the, um, the illnesses that are behavioral-related rather than something that's genetic or something that, um, that's beyond our control. So um, anyway, Kay and I started planning our trip to, um, to Tibet. And when I found out that she had her visa and her sister Pema had their visas turned down, I asked if it would be possible or it would be the possibility or the chance of them getting home would be better if they were traveling with a doctor, a physician that wanted to come and do something in the communities or the villages. So we took that chance and thought that maybe she would be able or they would be able to get their visas with the idea that I was going to come and help um, and work for a few weeks in the villages um, around where Kay comes from. So we made our um, application to this Chinese-Canadian embassy in um, Calgary, and it took them forever to, um, to answer. And, um, and I do remember going up to, uh, to the embassy with Kay and Pema, and the, um, the person at the, um, the embassy took a look at, I mean, my, my, my passport was not a problem, and my visa was not a problem, never a question. But um, when they looked at Pema's visa and they looked at Kay's visa, the birthplace on the visa says Tibet. It doesn't say China. And Kay said to me, but I was born in Tibet. It was not China when I was born. It wasn't. It was Tibet. And, um, but they said to her that it has to say China on her, piece, her, 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 her passport. It has to say China in order for her to get the visa into China. So it was a question of, well, what is the truth? I mean, the truth is that she was born in Tibet. And um, so for Kay, that was a difficult thing, and, and also for Pema, because they have family in, um, in Tibet, and they're not able to get back to Tibet to see the family because they can't get the visa into Tibet. So we, tried and we thought we'd try another avenue and go to Nepal and try to apply again through Nepal for, um, for their Tibetan or their Chinese visa. Uh, we flew to Kathmandu, Nepal, and there's very many um, Tibetan exiles in, in Kathmandu. And for me, it was a very big culture shock because Kathmandu is a city of like six and a half million in the size of um, about Calgary. Very crowded. A big culture shock. Um, and the thing that was really uh, shocking to me or surprising to me was that the roads are only one lane wide most places and they're not very, they're not very well paved in most places. And, um, and it's two-lane traffic, um, um, and they're small taxis. Anyway, um, the taxi drivers get by very well without accidents. I don't think we had one accident. But I never saw anger. I never saw taxi drivers get mad at each other. They, they passed each other on the road, they beat uh, along the way. And I wondered to myself, well, if this was Calgary, everybody would be angry, and there'd be road rage, road rage, road rage, sorry, 
and people fingering each other all over the place. And I thought to myself, what makes the difference? How can these people live in such crowded, um, in a crowded situation in peace? How can they get along? And um, I think that part of the answer lies in in the religions of that area. I think that because it's primarily Hindu and primarily Buddhist, that many of the people are um, nonviolent and um, and try to live in peace. And so I didn't see any violence. I didn't see people getting angry with each other in spite of crowded conditions and the poverty that um, that exists there. And to me, that that was um, quite a statement because very different from the Western world, where um, where we don't get along and we have a lot more space and a lot more resources. So anyway, we went to Kathmandu. We visited um, monasteries. Um, beautiful experience for me um, to stay at a monastery and to be woken at 4.30 in the morning with the chants, um, the monks chanting, Buddhist chanting, um, drums and, uh, and the peaceful noise of waking uh, to that. Never experienced that before, except for the nighttime singing at the Sundance, which to me was very similar um, in that it put the people in camp at rest. And it was very similar to when the, um, to the Buddhist monks were chanting at 4.30 in the morning, very peaceful. And um, because of Kaesong's connections and all of her history with, um, with the uh, monasteries and the people that she escaped with from Tibet, we were very well taken care of. I was never afraid um, and, um, and had a very wonderful time because the monks took care, care of us from one station to the next. So when somebody dropped us off somewhere, there was always somebody to meet us and take care of us. So I never had to worry about where we were going. I just enjoyed myself watching, watching where we went. So we went from Kathmandu and um, flew to a little place on the um, outskirts of um, of Kathmandu. I mean, uh, of Nepal, called Bhadrapur. And that day, the taxis were striking, and um, so we ended up having to cross from Bhadrapur to India onto the Indian side by rickshaw. And it was fine for Kay, and it was fine for all the little people in Tibet, <laughs> but not for a big Blackfoot Indian <laughs> that had to be pulled by a small uh, a rickshaw driver who I really felt sorry for. Yeah. But <laughs> anyway, we went across to um, the Indian side and um, and came to a village or an area very close to where Mother Teresa practiced. And so I was struck by the um, the idea that there were many um, religious groups that existed in the same place without violence. So we um, the um, we had a um, uh, one of the monks who picked us up, um, Wayne Lundrup, and I think I've got his picture here. So if you watch yourself, watch the slideshow okay. and the plasma. And Okay, actually, okay, so this is when we were in Kathmandu. We uh, stayed at a, um, uh, with a young woman by the name of um, Lafsan who had begun to take in um, people or had developed a small community of Tibet, Tibetan exiles who, um, who were first um, without employment and, um, and without um, resources. Um, so Lapsan, what she did was she uh, developed, she started to develop a community and she started with um, a one-room carpet factory and built uh, 
uh, room upon room and began to employ more people that were um, unemployed and poverty-stricken. And then she developed uh, um, uh, a daycare, and to that daycare she added one, one grade at a time. This is the backyard of uh, Lapsan, and this is Kaesong in Kathmandu. This is the, um, the um, marketplace, and I was struck by how much people could do in a small area. And so above the marketplaces are the, are the homes of most of these people here. And they build high, they build like room upon room and higher up. This is the outside of the borrowing um, monastery where um, we were well taken care of by um, the monks of Baroling, and we also were taken care of by nuns from there. This is the monastery and the residency of the, um, of the monks, the children in the street, um, and they play just the same as children on the reserve, no, no different. Downtown Kathmandu. This is a, a beauty parlor, a beauty shop. Um, Kay and I were uh, lucky enough to be able to contribute to the to the opening. Or this one of the young ladies in this picture was unemployed, but she was a um, or is a beautician. So for $150, Kay and I started a um, a beauty shop, and she opened that before we left. I think we were her first customers. And on the day, on the, uh, during the time that we were in Kathmandu, um, the um, garbage uh, city service was on strike, so the streets were full of garbage, and it was really a very different experience for me because the, um, you know the garbage had stopped for days, and it was it was very difficult to walk down the street. But the reason for that is because Nepal is made up of a coalition of seven parties. The government of Nepal is a coalition of seven parties. Um, they are now being pressured by uh, the, the Maoist party, who collects um, donations from uh, the businesses. And the businesses in uh, Kathmandu and Nepal, if they do not give a donation to the Maoist party, they um, suffer some consequences, and some buildings have been burned down. Um, some people have lost their um, their businesses because they did not make the, the contribution to the party. Um, the on the Tuesday that we were there, there was a discussion between the Maoist party. There was a discussion between the um, government of Nepal and the businesses because the business businesses were tired of being bullied. So there was some kind of um, uh, an agreement that was made and um, the garbage was soon cleaned up. This is one of the newer monasteries. Um, what was the, well, how do you say that, okay? Amidawa, beautiful new monastery, and these are all, in the background, are all nuns. Now, I told you at the beginning of the story that I had a, a dream about a purple and a white um, uh, silk tapestry that were hanging. So before I left, my father made a traditional um, offering, and it's an uh, offering that the black feet, or a, um, kind of a, a leaving that our people leave at certain spots and say a prayer and leave it. So my father made an offering, and um, I brought it all the way to a monastery in, in Kathmandu, where um, Kay's brother actually is. And I talked to the monks there, and they, and they said that it would be proper for me to, to combine the... Um, the offering with the um, the blackfoot offering with the flag of the um, 
of the monks in Kathmandu. So if you look at this picture, and I'm not sure that you can see that very well, at the very bottom of this picture is a purple and white offering. Yeah, and behind that is Mount, the site of Mount Everest. So um, I completed the cycle of the dream, and it was very, um, for me it was very fulfilling, and um, it was very much like a, a peace, uh, a, a message of peace between my people and the the monks of that area, or the people of that area. And this is part of the monastery and some village people. K is a new monastery. And before we left, when we got to this, when we were at this monastery, I was struck by this beautiful sound of um, hundreds of voices singing at the same time, and they were soft women's voices. And so the nunnery um, was actually um, in the midst of... um, of prayer and song and um, was very peaceful, very different from anything that I had known. And so this is the, um, the, nun, the nun, and there's one that turned to smile at us before we left. This is the place that we stayed in Kathmandu too. Your far right is Tema, our other tra- travel mate, my roommate, and then Kay is at the other side. The young girls in the middle were the ones that helped us to find our place in the city and make sure that we knew where we were going. This is the um, the daycare and the school that Lapsan built. So the daycare is to your far right, and she built one grade at a time. So each one of these small um, rooms is actually like grade one, grade two, grade three. And um, the school goes um, uh, Tuesday to Saturday. These are the children at the school who were learning English at the time and really had fun coming and introducing themselves to us. Then we started to, uh, they were interested in learning how a stethoscope worked. So we had fun with the stethoscope and listening to each other's hearts. This is the high school and this is a stupa in the middle of Kathmandu. This young man is hanging prayer flags which have many of our friends and family's names written on those little, all the little flags. So he hung that. And those are in the center of Kathmandu. This is the Baroling Monastery. Beautiful, active monastery. Everything is, um, intricately painted, design, I mean, painted and well kept. Lots of, um, maintenance. And, um, the monks are at the bottom, um, in the middle of prayer. And we were lucky enough to experience many, uh, or some of that. Monkeys, I had to see monkeys. <laughs> this is Buddha Air. It's a small plane that we took from uh, Kathmandu to the outskirts of Nepal. And there it is, Buddha Air. This is landing in um, Bhadrapur. It's the very um, outskirts of Nepal, and there was something very military going on. There was um, a, a minister or a person of high significance coming through, and this was on one of the days where they had a discussion between the um, Nepali uh, coalition and the businesses and the um, the Maoists, the um, rice uh, fields at going from uh, I mean from Nepal to India and there's the poor rickshaw driver that had <laughs> yeah. 
Kay um, was teasing and said that um, that the news would come back to Canada that it was a Canadian doctor that killed a rickshaw driver. <laughs> the little immigration check post before we went up to Darjeeling, and this is very close to the village where um, um, Mother Teresa practiced. The clinic where we stayed and where um, we were able to, this was the clinic way up in um, Darjeeling, which is like five hours up, um, up and up and up the mountainside. And um, it's about 2,500 meters above sea level. This is what it looks like looking down because it's very, very high up. And this struck me as something that was very important and I hadn't seen before. What it says is all the joy this world contains comes through the comes through wishing happiness for others. All the misery this world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself, which was written on the monastery wall in um, in Barling. I mean Darjeeling. This was a Darjeeling monastery. What I want you to take notice of is in Kathmandu or in um, Nepal and in India. The monasteries are very well kept. Um, lot, there's always people working on um, painting, on fixing, on, on making the monastery alive. At this monastery, there were 400 monks and um, very much alive, uh, many of the, them Tibetan exiles at this monastery. The monks in school, pharmacy, I had to take a picture of pharmacy. Now, Dar uh, Darjeeling in India was colonized by the English, and the English um, uh, had um, uh, had eventually uh, left um, Darjeeling. They left some um, some um, monuments to to England, and um, there's a small train they call the toy train, which is something that um, the uh, English government built and left, and it's still being used by the people in um, in Darjeeling. Behind that is the Himalayas, and right to the right of those mountains that you see is Mount Everest. This is um, Dwayne Lindrup, one of the monks who took very good care of us. Um, he is a teacher of, um, of Kay's um, great nephew, um, who is in Darjeeling, and a uh, teacher of many monks. And then Kay did not, Kay and Tema did not get their visa to. Um, to Tibet, so they stayed in Darjeeling, and I went by myself from Darjeeling on the rest of the trip to Tibet because I was very um, intense on making it to Tibet and seeing what the people in Tibet actually would happen or how they actually lived. So on the way down the mountainside, the monks brought me to homes of some of the people or home, homes of some of the people that needed um, help. And this lady here had broken her hip actually, and she continued to do work around her home and tried to get by with, um, you know, with, or tried to function as best that she could. What did I do? Okay, so, um, so we left, I brought a whole, uh, a whole duffel bag full of medication and left a lot of um, painkillers with her. Oxen. That's the little airport in um, in Bajrapur. It's actually totally empty. There's only a couple of baggage handlers down there that also are ticket the ticket handlers. So um, the the 
tower that's usually full of somebody that's watching out for um, for planes to crash actually had nobody in it. Buddha Air, and right behind that is Mount Everest. So we, on the way back to um, to Kathmandu, um, the airplane flew very close to Mount Everest. Yellow River, I'm in Tibet now and um, crossing, um, we've landed in Tibet and it's a very, very, very different um, picture to me than is Kathmandu and um, Darjeeling. First of all, it's very, um, it, it seems like it's very empty of people. There were, there were no people around after we landed. This is crossing the Yellow River and um, a image of Buddha just before getting into the capital city of Tibet, Lhasa. And this is the Potala Palace. Um, the palace has two um, main areas. It's a thousand rooms. It's been built over um, hundreds and hundreds of years and has always been the residence of the Dalai Lama until this Dalai Lama was exiled. Um, the, when we arrived here, um, the travel, I mean, the, the, um, the guide said that the whole palace now is inactive um, as a monastery, and um, the white part of the palace is completely occupied by Chinese authorities and um, is no longer occupied by Tibetan people or monks. The only active part of the monastery is there's a small red area up to your top left, or your top, yeah, your top, to your top right, top right, and um, I was was very um, struck, I was struck by the fact that there were only about 12 to 14 monks in that whole um, area, whereas when I was in Kathmandu and Darjeeling, the monasteries were alive with monks and with activity, and um, and here there were only 12 monks. The red part of the palace is the only active part now. The rest is all occupied by by Chinese authorities. Lhasa, I think, is very much like um, and Tibet. The, the um, landscape of Tibet is very much like home. And this is the center of Lhasa. Uh, many people make a pilgrimage to this area. What is the name of this? Jokang Palace, that's right. And behind this, you can see Potala Palace in the far, in the back there. Many people in the marketplace, I'm sorry, it's sideways. Many people in the marketplace um, coming for pilgrimage as well as um, selling their, their goods. Um, I was taken to the, um, let's see if I can rotate this. I was taken to um, the traditional Tibetan hospital. It wasn't a Western hospital, but it's a hospital that has um, been developed by the Tibetan people over hundreds of years. And um, we were able to visit the inside of the hospital, and it's all traditional medicine versus Western medicine. But what I was struck by was the teachings of the um, of the uh, Tibetan traditional medicine. And the picture here, if I, if I could... What it is, is it's actually a development of a human from one cell through, um, through the development until birth, which you, 
which is difficult for you to see, but it's very much like the idea of Western medicine, and it's divided into what are called trimesters. A pregnancy is divided into three um, stages, and it's trimesters, and the, um, the Tibetan beliefs, is, uh, the Tibetan teaching for their, um, their medicine includes um, trimesters. This was a man that was teaching us about traditional Tibetan medicine, and there's very much of it that's a lot like family practice. And um, these are um, centuries of uh, writings um, for Tibetan medicine in these cabinets. There it is, the outpatient department of the traditional Tibetan hospital of the Tibetan Autonomous Region is what the TAR is. I was struck by um, the um, when you, the prayer flags everywhere else you go are, are pure colors, and the prayer flags in front of the summer palace of the used are the summer palace where uh, Dalai Lama had what is it called? Now? Nobilinga. Nobilinga had Budweiser flags hanging from it. This is the building that was in my dream, and it's at a um, it was it's yeah Sarang yes and I was and this place actually is very active. Um, these are monks at Sarang who are um, who are being tested on philosophy and it was very alive debating and um, and the ones that are on the that are sitting on the ground are the ones that have to answer the questions and the ones that are standing up are the ones that have the joy of asking the questions just as Tony asks you questions. And, and um, this is, uh, I was struck by one of the things in, um, in Tibet, and that is that traveling through the villages is very different than coming to the cities. All of the cities have um, uh, huge, um, um, uh, like the banks and the hotels and everything have big um, um, stone buildings that are guarded by um, armed guards in the front. So there's armed guards down in the front. The other buildings do not have that. And um, this is one of the travel agents, and I wasn't able to, I was almost missing the bank, and the bus had left, and, and I was going to walk to the bank, but I wouldn't have made it, and he said, I, you should ride on my um, motorcycle, and I said, no, I'm too heavy for your motorcycle. He said, no, you're going to miss the, the bank if you don't get on my motorcycle, and so I got on his motorcycle, and I felt it sink, and then he, I, then he turned around, and he said, lady, you very heavy. <laughs> It, this is a Tibetan family and the dress of the Tibetan people of that region. What is the name of this place? Okay. Dengxing. It's got a, a wall all the way around the outside and it actually What is it? This one is next to His Holiness's palace and it also has a, a stone wall around. Many of the, the village people came for pilgrimage. And this is a picture of um, something I think is really special in the um, in the higher regions in um, in the Tibetan plateau. The people, the Tibetan people, the um, indigenous people of that area, have developed an economic system that's um, or a, or a, a lifestyle which is very um, is actually fairly good for the land. And um, so they grow what grows up there, and there's a very hardy barley that grows there and they also have um, animals and the yak is one that's a very uh, staple of that area 
And it struck me because um, this area doesn't grow a whole lot of things, or at least a, a hundred years ago. And um, we lived off of the buffalo, and so we lived off of their 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 fur, their skin, their meat, their hooves, and even their dung, because we collected the buffalo dung, dried it, and used it as um, as fuel uh, or for fuel. And so I was really struck because the indigenous people of that area in Tibet live basically off barley and um, and the yak. They use the yak for everything, including the dung, which they use for fuel as well. But this area, this what we're looking at here is a mill. And um, underneath this mill is a canal. And there's a wheel that's, that's in the canal. And as the water runs past the wheel, it turns. So there's no electricity or no power used other than the water that's run under the mill. And, um, and it turns the big stone. And the barley is poured into like a funnel at the top of this, and the, and the barley goes down and it's crushed by the, um, the stone. There's no waste, so it's completely clean to the environment. And um, the, um, the flour is collected and used as staple uh, sampa. It's a traditional dress of a lady from one of the villages higher up. A little girl in the marketplace who came to um, to sing and play her um, guitar. Yeah, I don't know how to stop this now. Okay, so um, how do I turn this off? Um, so basically, it, it, for me, it was a quest to find out how indigenous people of another area live, how they're affected by um, by um, colonization or invasion by another power, because the same thing has happened to indigenous people um, or native people in Canada. And what is the what are the differences? What are the similarities? Um, I think that you know, on my trip through Tibet. I was able to talk to many many of the people, um, you know, that did speak English. Many of the young people that spoke English, and I was really appalled by the human rights issues that I had not seen here, and they haven't occurred for, you know, maybe 80 years um, to 100 years, where people were killed and nothing was done about it. In Tibet, many people disappear, and there is no news of it because there's no free um, paper in Tibet. So there's no voice for the Tibetan people to say somebody, so somebody has disappeared or somebody's missing. They go missing and there's no report of it. Um, and um, also the, um, you know, the, the number of people who have family outside of Tibet and um, who are afraid for the lives of their family, people, the people that were in exile and still are, many of them politically, um, um, political exiles who fear for their lives. Um, and many of those people cannot speak out because they're afraid for the people that are left at home. Um, you know, you never know if they could go missing. So I was quite struck by that. I didn't uh, didn't realize until I saw it. Um, you know, I didn't see anybody go missing, but I talked to very many people who were knowledgeable about the disappearance of people in Tibet. Uh, the idea that none of them have a vote, none of them can um, decide what happens 
to them in that area so that there is no freedom for the people, for the indigenous people upset. And um, I'm hoping that, you know, that things do change for them. It's, it's hard to see that because I think that although things that happen to indigenous people or uh, aboriginal people in Canada, we do have a vote and we do have a chance to make some changes in our in our communities and in our future. Um, the people of the Tibetan Plateau were very healthy, um, but there were very few of them there. And um, many of them are in exile in Kathmandu, where it's very crowded and lots of poverty, and many people in India where the same thing occurs. So um, the populations were, the population is very um, uh, gant in, in the Tibetan Plateau. But um, the question in that area is, will they be allowed to continue to live that lifestyle, which is good for the environment and is healthy for the people? I think that if resources are found in that area, mining resources, uranium, whatever, there may be a, a change to that to that um, situation, and I fear for that. Um, so basically, that's my story and um, and my friendship with Kay and, and Tema and how it may relate to your class. Are there any questions? Is there uh, a policy of uh, encouraging Chinese immigration into Tibet so the Tibetans become smaller in number in comparison to the overall population? I think that um, the cities themselves, like each of the large cities that I came to, I came to um, um, Lhasa, which is... Um, very heavily populated with Chinese um, uh, Chinese population. There's a new seed train that comes from the east, and it and I think the endpoint is Lhasa, like it's one of those really uh, high speed trains. And so there's a lot of people coming into the, the city of Lhasa, very different from um, uh, from the villages where you know where it's traditional uh, Tibetan um, homes and farms, and the big cities in uh, Tibet are based cities where all of a sudden you come to structures that are very different than what the traditional structures are and um, big banks and big um, uh, hotels that are guarded by Chinese um, or by guards um, and um, just a very different feeling that if you walk, you know, like, I mean, I think it's very controlled, even the tourism is very controlled, you, you are not to walk very far from where you're where you're where the uh, where you're allowed to walk, and um, not a feeling of freedom in the cities, but in the villages, people were, you know, welcoming, and you know, children were out playing, and you know, very different than um, Lhasa or um, Chikishi or any of the other large uh, cities. Um. If the city, if Tibet is totally controlled by the Chinese government, how could you, like, talk to some knowledge people, you know, about the disappeared person? It was very difficult. It was very difficult. They were afraid to talk. Eh? Yeah. They were afraid to say what their names were. They were afraid that there would be some um, some repercussions. But they did trust me because, um, you know, they told me stories. And I believe them. Yeah, but the thing is, they have an oppressive life, and then they are controlled by the Chinese government, and then they 
seemed like they, they, they couldn't get a higher level education or they totally like separated from their own traditional education, but the thing is they can talk to a friend. Yeah, well, exactly what you said. When they leave their traditional Tibetan families and, um, and, and, and um, embrace Chinese language, Chinese culture, and they leave their language and their culture behind, then they're free to get an education. So there is a condition. Yes, there is. Yeah, many of the families that I spoke to said that they're sad because their children have left home and they have turned their back on the Tibetan culture because they've been able, you know, because they've um, gone to school in a Chinese school and were able to get government jobs in their Chinese with the Chinese people, but they had to turn their back on being Tibetan and um, and many of them were embarrassed to to say that they were Tibetan. And that happened here, like in 1940, 1930, 1940. Indian people were, or Aboriginal people were ashamed to say they were Aboriginal. Well, thank you, Esther. Thank you very much. I have a question for Esther. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you see the possibility for the formation of some kind of coalition group, or maybe there already is, of indigenous peoples throughout uh, the Americas and then maybe also throughout the world in a, in a collective effort to uh, fight for the rights that are inherently yours. Uh, yes, there are organizations, um, and probably Tony has taught some, hopefully he's taught some history on um, on that, but there is there was an organization uh, which um, I think is trying to become active. It was called the World Council of Indigenous People, and they met um, first in Kiruna, Sweden, and then in um, in Canberra, Australia. And um, uh, basically, it was a coming together of um, fourth world uh, people, uh, indigenous people from around the world, who had basically the same experience. Um, of course, there were many people that weren't involved in that, probably should have been involved in that, like we didn't have Tibetan um, uh, people there. We didn't have many people there, probably because it was difficult to get out of their state and into, into meeting with other indigenous people. But it was active and hopefully will become, or there will be an organization that's active like that as well. Is that something that's ever discussed within the Blackfoot community? Uh, um, one of our um, our members, um, Marie Maruli Smallface, is one of the um, our Smallface Maruli is one of the um, uh, people that was actively involved in developing the organization with um, you know with George Manuel, who wrote the book The Fourth World, and who um, is thought to be the father of a lot of that thinking, uh, and brought a lot of people together uh, for you know the creation of the organization. So. Marie, being part of our tribe, um, brought a lot of um, knowledge and education to people within the tribe, and many people were involved in um, many people were involved in the beginnings of that organization. Thanks for your presentation. I think I've said this in different ways, but uh, when I first arrived in Lethbridge, of course I had a lot to learn. Uh, 
teaching in Native American studies, and uh, it definitely was a situation where I needed some help from uh, Blackfoot people to uh, be able to uh, orient myself and uh, try to be true to the spirit of uh, what a Native American program would, uh, the Native American studies program would have to be like. So Esther was uh, very instrumental and uh, she tells, she's just telling me even nowadays about just before I arrived, the World Council of Indigenous Peoples, the headquarters of it was here at the University of Lethbridge. And uh, there's so many things uh, in the history of this institution that uh, you, know, you would like to see more um, embraced and more celebrated because important things have happened here. The, the peace camps during the period uh, leading up to the invasion of Iraq, that was a big event in the lives of people here. The uh, Action Club and the trip to the Quebec City in 2001, this, this uh, exorcism of history, maybe history that speaks of some difficult issues, it's not just in China. Uh, it's so important that we try to keep our memory alive because I, I do believe that there is something about capitalism that violates every form of Aboriginal history. That somehow the flow of capitalism where we are to be individual consumers and producers uh, doesn't easily accommodate the reality that the, uh, there are these heritages out of thousands of years and this is our richness as human beings. This is this is our inheritance. This is what we have to work with. And to extinguish this and, and, and violate this, uh, we're always working to try to keep, you know, how do you keep that history alive? How do you pass it on? How do we make decisions about what we keep from the past and what we need to do to adapt to the future? So all of us, all human beings, are all, always faced with those, with those questions. And I, I really uh, appreciate the great... Uh, respect and uh, uh, mutual reciprocity in the way we discuss this difficult issue. We've been discussing difficult issues with respect to the American empire, to that superpower, and it's a university. We need to be even-handed and try to uh, deal with uh, questions of, of oppression or repression wherever they may, may exist. And we, we have to be in, introspective and not shy away from looking at it within our own society, which I think Esther has, has emphasized. Uh, Esther is very involved with the indigenous politics of Norway, and her children are Norwegian citizens and uh, partake in Blackfoot and Sami culture. So Esther uh, has uh, been very uh, important to, to me in my life in pointing out the, this global character, this international character of these these issues. Uh, Marita, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Marita Midori, Midori, excuse me, Midori, uh, who is from Prince Edward Island and has been uh, working, uh, essentially sharing time with Esther and observing her work and uh, informing her own work as a, a, a soon-to-be graduated doctor, medical doctor. So thank you very much for coming out uh, this evening, and I'm sorry I botched the uh, in introduction. Uh, I'd, I'd like to uh, now introduce Prof Professor Rodriguez, Hilary Rodriguez, and there's a 
quite a few things that are coming full cycle tonight. Um, when uh, I got the concepts of globalization studies and was seeking potential how, uh, potential collaborators or associates in this in, in this line, uh, Hillary is one of the first I thought of. Dr. Rodriguez, is something wrong, Kelvin? Yeah, I've got a theory. Uh, and um, in any case, in those days, uh, Dr. Rodriguez was chair of the anthropology department. He's now reincorporated into uh, religious studies, the religious studies department at the University of Lethbridge. The religious studies department went through a period where it kind of seemingly vanished, and now it's resuscitated. And and uh, I'm I'm living amongst them uh, in in that neighborhood on the eighth level. So I invited uh, Dr. Rodriguez to come in this evening. We had talked about a, a general discussion about globalization and religion. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez's specialization is in Hinduism and Buddhism. And without further ado, uh, Professor Rodriguez, uh, perhaps you could share a few thoughts on what you've heard and perhaps project into larger issues as you may see fit. Okay. Yeah, so you need to just put it wherever Thank you, everybody. Um, that was a very moving talk. Uh, Kate Thomas was, uh, uh, I don't know if I could say it was good to hear, but in a way it's always good to be reminded of what it's like to, to feel deeply about an issue and to, uh, to be at the the, um, uh, the receiving end of something that is clearly oppressive uh, to you, to your people, and uh, uh, to the culture and, and uh, religious tradition that you grew up in. And, and Esther, thank you also for, for bringing that kind of perspective um, that takes the particulars of what happened in Tibet and kind of... Uh, shows its resonances with something that has in fact been going on here for 500 plus years. Um, while the situation in Tibet is 40 some years, almost 50, seeds you know, of, of, uh, of oppression sometimes uh, bear fruit for long periods of time. And sometimes reconciliation can take, take uh, uh, a long time. If, in, if indeed things ever truly get fully resolved, I mean, one wonders about that. Uh, I had the good opportunity actually to travel to to Tibet this summer as well. So when I heard that uh, you were coming to give a talk, it was actually wonderful because we had been toying with some other ideas. And so uh, this June, for the first time, I had the opportunity to actually do the overland route, sort of the inverse of what, what uh, Esther did. I actually went from Kathmandu up to Lhasa and stopped at a certain a number of monasteries uh, along the way. This wasn't my first, it was my first visit to Tibet. Not my first uh, interest in Tibetan Buddhism. I, in my early years as a traveler in India and Nepal, I had encountered uh, uh, Tibetan monks. I uh, had the good fortune, actually, of uh, traveling to Sikkim back in the late 70s. And... Uh, 
being invited to take refuge and undergo some initiations with the 16th Karmapa, uh, also very important uh, uh, Lama uh, among the four schools of, of Tibetan Buddhism. When I trekked to Nepal, I met Krushe uh, uh, Rinpoche, uh, also a very renowned Lama uh, among the Sherpa people. And so, in some, this was before I was a, a scholar or interested actually in religious studies, uh, with my own curiosity about life and culture and the world that led me to some of these places and some encounters with, with uh, important and interesting people. In some indirect way, maybe, uh, my interest in finally going to school to get a degree in religious studies uh, may have been shaped by that, you know, because those were part of my, my travels to sort of see part of the world. Now, I just thought I'd mention some things historically, and those of you who maybe know something about the history of Tibet or China can correct me on this because I'm not an expert on it. I don't work uh, primarily with Tibetan Buddhism, per se, or the history of Tibet. But uh, some, there were some questions that came up, I noticed, in class earlier. What's this relationship between Tibet and China happens to have been? I mean, in a sense, uh, Tibet was always an independent part of the world, an independent people. Its isolation being, you know, really very high up uh, meant that it really wasn't visited very often by other groups. It's sort of, kind of the way the Navajo picked a part of the world where no one would sort of come, right? And Hopi chose that as well. They said, look, this is where, this is one of the most remote areas on the planet. People might leave us alone for a little while to do what that we do. You know, this is kind of an idea of choosing an, uh, an area of the world. It's so high. You take that bus, for goodness sake, from, from Kathmandu. You know, the rains are pouring. You've got the monsoons. There's mud flowing down. And you climb up to passes that are 5,050 meters, 5,200 meters. That's more than 1,500 feet. That's higher than the tallest peaks in this part of the Rockies. You've got roads, you know, that, that are up that 15, high. 15,000. Sorry, 15,000. 15,000 15, feet, right? Mm -hmm. 5,000 meters. I mean, you leave, the, you leave the monsoons behind and you come up into that clear air up in the Tibetan high plateau. It's cold, it's brisk, where the altitude gets to you. And I have tracked in high altitude uh, before, but, but you feel it. You, it. It requires a kind of courage and strength to really live up there. Fine. The Tibetans lived, they had their own religious traditions prior to the coming of Buddhism. Buddhism came as a cider tradition to Tibet. The Tenon tradition was there earlier. And around the 7th or 8th century, you had uh, King Tongsen Gampo, who in fact brings or opens up Buddhism, invites missionaries from India and so on into, into uh, Tibet. And Tibet ends up with a distinctive kind of Buddhism as a tantric form of Buddhism that is characterized by complex ritual activities. You think of Tibetan monks performing sacred dances, building, you know, elaborate sand mandalas and so on. This became part of the culture that developed. For me, the real tragedy when you look at Tibet and some of the things that we've lost is the loss of great human art, expertise and knowledge. In our lifetime, let us say, certainly in mine, in 50 years, there's been a, a destruction of that in front of our very 
very eyes. You know, that's uh, particularly sad. What we see are sort of vestiges of it remaining. Uh, I felt sad when I traveled to Tibet because I saw, I mean, it's interesting, you still those monasteries in, the, in, in India now and in, 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 uh, in Nepal that are painted and so on and well cared for. Tibet had 5,000 or more, some say 6,000 monasteries. There are only about 550 that remain after the, uh, uh, the communist revolution, the cultural revolution, monasteries were destroyed. Some are under recovery. Some are being sort of, you know, there, there, there's some maintenance uh, taking place. But uh, to a great extent, um, you see a kind of a, a culture in retreat. Um, that photograph that was shown to you of the monks debating in Sarah. Well, there are about five or six hundred monks at Sarah right now. But Sarah once had six thousand monks. You imagine the University of Lethbridge. It has a population of what? I mean, what was our student population? Seven, eight thousand? Imagine if you came here, you know, twenty, thirty years later, and saw six hundred students. You know, a few sitting in each class, right? Where there are two hundred and fifty or three hundred professors, you see ten or twenty profs. What has happened to the rest of them? Well, many died. Many fled to India. But sometimes certain monks only had held in their mind the knowledge of building particular types of mandalas. This is a kind of an art that was passed on through an oral tradition, right? You would learn how to do this, and you would hold it in your mind and teach others how to do it. And monks would learn how to create these mandalas, these elaborate patterns. Sometimes they learn 30 or 40 or 50 of them and transmit it to others. Well, if a monk dies who has this tradition, it's gone. It's not as if someone else can pick up the tradition because the tradition is passed really from mind to mind uh, without, because when these mandalas are actually painted or are made with sand, they're destroyed after they are done. They're only, they're, they're constructed for the purpose of work. Sometimes they're painted in a hard form and preserved in a tanka. You know that big white structure in, uh, with, the, with the tall? There are large tankas that are rolled out once a year for people to see and venerate uh, there. Uh, but, but typically the arts are not always put in this kind of firm, fixed form format. They are, because in the Buddhist view, things are impermanent. You don't sort of try to cling to them in some material form. And when you talk about capitalism running a power of of cultures. I thought, yeah, you know, Max Weber talks about this and so on. I don't think it's only capitalism. Maybe you could say it's communism and capitalism. But what do they share in common? It's materialism. It's a kind of a material, it's a value that, it's, it's a sense of, of valuing the material over something else. Perhaps you could call it the spiritual, you could call it the aesthetic, the artistic. I'm not quite sure what this. Maybe it's something that's part of being human, an important part of being human that sometimes gets ruptured, and that seems to be held in lower value in certain, cu- in certain cultures or in certain political arenas. If people stop and think about it, they might think differently, but you sort of find sometimes that, that gets lost somehow in the equation, the equations of power, the equations of expansion, uh, the equations of economic necessity. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so I want to talk a bit about history. So Tibet was there, isolated with its own rich culture, its, you know, which was shaped by Buddhism coming, 
uh, and influencing the Bun religion and so on. Then, at one point, and China, of course, was varying in its size. You had the Han Dynasty and the Qin and so on, the Tang. Anyway, at one point, the Yuan, the Mongols, Genghis Khan and so on, they conquered a good bit of the world, right? They, in fact, united big part of China, conquered the sections that were otherwise run by other groups, and they, of course, entered into Tibet. Well, when they entered Tibet, of course, the Mongols got religion, you know, in different places, eventually. We always think of them as sort of barbaric and, you know, basically just destroying everything. Well, by the time they got to parts of the Middle East, they turned to Islam. And so, what you have is the great emperors, really, of uh, uh, ruling out of Persia, were really Mongol, descendants of the Mongols. They eventually got into India and got called the Mughals. Mughals are really nothing more than the descendants of the Mongols ruling out of Iran. Well, the Mongols got religion in China from the Tibetans. The earliest, the second Karmapa, I had the good fortune of actually being, receiving an initiation from the Karmapa. He's the 16th Karmapa, but the second. Uh, Karmapas were the first to do this recognized reincarnation business, if you like, right? Um, the second Karmapa was a kind of spiritual mentor to Kublai Khan, uh, the great Mongol. And what had happened is as a result of this early relationship, but then they had a bit of a falling out and a coming together and so on. But there was a relationship, a religious relationship, that was set up between the Mongol rulers of China and the Tibetans. And to some extent, Tibet was kind of left on its own because it was a seat of kind of cultural, spiritual authority and power. Then there were, you know, when the Ming Dynasty comes into power, let us say the Ming kind of throw out the Mongols, Yuan and so on, they kept that relationship. The relationship gets reestablished, a strong relationship. Some people have talked about a kind of priest-patron relationship between Tibet and the rest of China. When the Manchus, or the Qing dynasty, comes into power, following the, the Ming. It is at this time that the Dalai Lama, actually the third Dalai Lama, gets established, he gets the title actually, as the Dalai Lama, by the Manchu rulers of China. They say, look, you, you are the ocean of wisdom and compassion, Lama. Dalai means ocean. And would you please, in some sense, take over both the political and religious rule of Tibet? Take, you know, like, he's conferred that authority politically. to be the monk. Why would he want to rule, in some sense, a, a nation, right? But there's a certain of allowing this kind of, of uh, sovereignty over the land, both politically and religiously. He happened to be the third guy because there were already two previous incarnations. It turns out actually it's the third Dalai Lama who gets the title and by, by default then the first two are counted as also being part of this lineage. To correct you, their first residence monastically is not the Potala, but it's Drepung Monastery. And then they build the Potala and the Norbalinga as, as palaces. So, what ends up happening then is you really get the Dalai Lamas essentially ruling Tibet both religiously and politically. Ruling meaning what? The, the kind of rule that Tibet had was a rule based on Buddhist values. Right? Uh, not to say that they weren't intrigued and, 
and machinations for political power, it would be naive to think that that didn't happen. There was assassinations of Dalai Lamas and so on that occurred. But Tibet ruled itself in its own form or fashion. It really always thought it had this friendly relationship with China, uh, some in which there was this mutual, a mutual understanding. In fact, when the Nepali Gurkhas attacked Tibet, Tibet actually asked China for help, and China sent 50,000 troops, at least this was, you know, and so on. So that there were, it was a sense of, of a relationship between these, these two people, although China isn't just one set of people, there are obviously all sorts of people in China. It's a, it's a rich and complex uh, piece of, uh, of land as well. So that clearly, when the, when the revolution that was uh, started by uh, Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, took place, the Tibetans didn't really think much about it. They weren't initially very worried. But in 49 and 50, when they were encroach, encroachments and invasions, if you like, you know, because this ideology, this, the ideology of communism, started to sweep and take over. Well, how far would it go? It would go as far as, because you're bringing in a, just as Buddhism maybe had its missionary zeal to go out and spread the word, or Christianity, or Islam, in a sense, communism has a certain kind of equality. Marxism has a certain kind of a missionary quality about it. It's bringing a kind of, of righteous rule and governance to people who are oppressed by the ruling classes and so on. So this kind of ideology, of course, moved into Tibet. Tibetans were a little surprised, my goodness, they didn't really quite clue in to the fact that they were being overrun in some sense. It was, they were, they were, Hot back initially a little bit, but in 59, much 10, 10 years, really after uh, His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, fled. Probably on, had he remained there, he might have been killed, almost certainly. So he escaped into India and ended up forming a Tibetan government in exile in India. So the Tibetans feel that they have been overrun, conquered, by China. When the Dalai Lama fled to India, they set up a government in India. Currently, the Talon Tripa, Samdong Rinpoche, he's like the prime minister. I actually was opportunity to meet and chat with him when he was still the head of the Tibetan uh, uh, Institute of Higher Learning in, in, in Sarnath, near Varanasi. The uh, well-regarded, highly regarded uh, uh, Lama. And uh, in a sense, Tibetans, the, the response of Tibetans could have been a violent or what? Self-recognition, independence again from China. The Dalai Lama received the Nobel Peace Prize because he has been outspoken to try and encourage young Tibetans not to take up violence. Because the way of Buddhism has been to try to spread nonviolently. In a way, when we look at the history of Buddhism, which is a missionary tradition, and we compare it to Christianity and Islam, yeah, there have been instances of, of, of Buddhists being violent, but they have been surprisingly nonviolent in their spread. When you consider that Buddhism has gone from India to Sri Lanka and to Tibet and to China and to Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia and so on. You don't get many instances of Buddhist kings kind of, you know, just roaring in there with arm, armies and so on and conquering by force 
the people. That's not the way, it's not been. That has ha- it's happened on occasion. I'm not going to not be naive to say that it hasn't. The deal of being a, a bodhisattva king and so on. But surprisingly, Buddhism has... And here you have a classic example in the modern period of a, of a nation overrun to some extent. Its leader, politically, who could really just now go, okay, you guys, get out there and start killing people and, you know, make it, make it problematic for the Chinese and they'll just leave the land again, right? Dalai had a five-point peace plan. He said, look, no. We will talk to the Chinese. We will talk, try to get the world's attention to, to understand what's happening here so that we will be given certain kind of freedom, rights to govern ourselves, and so on. Sadly for me, going to Tibet, I thought, you know, uh, 30 years ago, it seemed more realistic. Now, my travels to Tibet, I don't think it's unrealistic, but I see how much harder it is, because what has happened is, if you think, Tibet's a really large chunk of real estate. And how many Tibetans were there? What's the population of Tibetans? Six? Seven? Six million? Seven million? Yeah. Well, what's the population of China? It's more than a billion, right? Where are these people going to live? Right? The Tibetans didn't believe so much religiously. It wasn't, you know, to cut down the forest, to dig out the, the, the minerals in the earth and so on. This was not part of the tradition, as you pointed out. To them, it was trying to live a minimalist life. They weren't living that way because they were deprived terribly. Oh, it's the Chinese perception, the materialistic perception of what is better, what is modern, what is better for people, was that, look, you know, you've got to dig up the stuff, make better roads, make, you know, make it more efficient. It's interesting, because, you know, the old Taoist, there's an old Taoist saying once, and it's a beautiful story in Taoist, about uh, uh, a guy is like, has a well, and he's like, putting, you know, a bucket in the well and pulling it out and taking the bucket and pouring water on his, on his plant. And some other person comes along and says, why the heck are you doing that? Why don't you create like a water wheel that will immediately pull the water out and irrigate your plants and so on efficiently? You know, you'll get much more stuff done and so on. And then this guy who's pulling the water out, he turns around because he's a Taoist master. And he says, what makes you think I want to water my plants faster? Right? I like the process of going to the well, putting the bucket in, pulling it out, and watering my plants. That gives me a certain sense of fulfillment and meaning. He just assumes that I want to do this more effectively, more efficiently, and so on. Because you come with an orientation of what is better and apply it to my value system. It's an old, it's, it's, that's a, you know, 500 BCE old Chinese tale. Somehow, this had been forgotten in China, this idea of valorizing other people's perspective. The Tibetans had their own system. It certainly didn't look as efficient. It may have looked backward, you know, to, to, to China on, on, on the brink of modernity and so on. And that, of course, is still China's argument about what it is doing in Tibet. It is, it, it's engaged in a process of modernizing, making more efficient, making better the, the life of the Tibetan people. But is it really? Yes, it is bringing a certain kind of material prosperity to the people, but at a price that they themselves are not willing to pay, are not really interested in paying. Is there repression in, of, of, of the Tibetan people? I, I didn't go there with a political agenda. I was there interested in seeing some of the religious stuff, you know. We teach new religious studies. We don't promote religion, incidentally. We 
we teach about religion, try to understand them, try to understand why people are religious, and, and so on. Uh, and I found a lot of fear. I mean, we're hanging around the Potala, which is now just a museum, you know, in many ways. It's not the living, vibrant monasteries that you see in, you know, Bodnaz and Kathmandu, down in Vilakati, uh, in, in Dharamsala. There are places all through India where you suddenly see Tibetan Buddhism is flourishing in some sense, vestigially, but it's coming, coming back, it's, it's revived. I found it kind of, you know, in duress, great duress in, in, in Tibet. But, uh, I had people, you know, going around the Potala going, you know, sometimes I actually see some hair. Yeah, and they go, hair on your chest, how cool is that? You know, open your shirt or something, right? And they go, oh, look, you've got a hairy chest, you're Indian, and you know, all this other stuff. Uh, and then I said, let me see your chest or something. And the guy like looks up and says, ooh, no hair. But then I see like a little thing with the, with his holiness hanging around me. He goes, you know, they're terrified that if any signs of the Dalai Lama are viewed by others, they will get into deep trouble. A British friend, who's kind of a punk guy, a rocker, you know, he, I'm not so sure about his mental stability, but he was traveling with us. And what he did is start sending like emails from Lhasa going, you know, oh man, we're here, and you know, the Panchen Lama, I think he might just be a stool of the, uh, you know, and so on. Suddenly, he gets a message appearing on his email going, please, you know, you must stop this. And so, so his email is being monitored. Now we keep hearing about this. You know, your email is monitored and so on. How would you feel if you're sending a message to your friend, you know, and suddenly, thing, something comes up and says, we're watching what you're sending. Please desist from this. Right? So there was a, even though it was nothing for him to do, we said, how could you do that? That's stupid. Right? Now they know that you are sending these emails and they probably, but it was a verification that that in fact does happen. Because otherwise it's just hearsay. You just tell people monitor your email. Yeah, yeah, right. You know? But in fact, they do. Right? So China does have certain kinds of, what? Constraints on the people of Tibet. To some extent, there's a certain sense that Tibetans are backwards. They need to be uplifted somewhat from their sorry condition. Right? This is the kind of paternalism that we often find when dealing, when a conquering nation comes and conquers another group. They are children, mentally, emotionally, even physically. Their health is not so good. Look, they're sensing mortality. They're dying. They can't take care of themselves. We will bring medicine, help, aid, and so on and so forth to them, right? And we will nurture them, bring them up from their poor, sorry state, because they're not quite like us. They're a bit inferior, right? One day they will rise to being. So that second class attitude is always present uh, when you've got one group of people that sometimes thinks itself better than the other. Is there stuff happening in Tibet? Yes. The Chinese government is putting a lot of money into, into Lhasa, for instance. It's a Chinese city, kind of. And Tibetans are now more in charge of their, uh, their own stuff. There's a lot of infrastructure work. There's, there's plant, you know, sewers and so on being built there. Part of it, some people say, is because of the the approaching Olympics. The Olympics in Beijing means foreigners from many different countries will be arriving in China. And where will they want to go? Among the many places. China has a rich, wonderful uh, history and culture. But many people want to go to Tibet. You know, let's go to Tibet and see it. So, 
to some extent, there's a showcasing of what China has done for Tibet, that it's in play already, so that when the world comes to China, it will see how Tibet has been improved and so on. But in the process, we find for the Tibetans themselves, uh, a, a lot of dismay. People estimate that as many as a million Tibetans have died, not just because of the, uh, the war, as it were, but also because of disease and other things that have taken place in the aftermath. I mean, I don't know about these figures, but that's substantial if you consider a population of six million uh, losing one million of its population as a result of, uh, of, of uh, Chinese rule. There are two sides to every story. I, 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 as I said, I don't know fully what the Chinese perspective is except to what I've been reading. Uh, uh, but as I say, whatever the two sides are of the story, something is always tragic and lost. And when a people feels oppressed, when a people feels that somehow its cultural people, most deeply held values are violated, it is incumbent on human beings to stop and pay attention to that and, and try to find a way to rectify it in, in some form. Uh, it doesn't look like a political, well, a kind of a military settlement is the way to go, clearly, but I think putting some kind of pressure on the Chinese government, maybe that pressure is not the right way either. Maybe somehow uh, a, a more educated populace might think differently. The Chinese are getting, uh, you know, I'm a world traveler, I travel a lot. There are a lot of Chinese traveling now. Young people are going all over, all over the planet, you know. You go to Bali, there's Chinese, you know, clients are going up to Chinese. Before, we'd see a bit of Japanese, you know, there's a lot of Israelis on the road. But Chinese on the road, you know, backpacking, wow, that was, that's wild, that's new, right? There's a lot of young people now in China traveling. I think there's a lot of hope there. Because what will happen is you'll find, you'll get, you'll get populace, a younger populace, looking at the world, thinking differently, and ultimately perhaps taking up the reins of power in the country. And I think there lies the greatest hope. But I should end, because I think we're almost out of time. Right? Some time, some questions. Anyway, I'm sorry to go on. <clears throat> I don't know if that helps clarify something. And, uh, do you have any questions? I have a question for you. Yeah. I think... Um, a uh, likely or a possible solution that Tibetans might be happy with would be to maybe in not obviously not in the, in the near future, but the Chinese were set up some sort of um, religious type monarch in Tibet, and uh, you know let the Dalai Lama and the Tibetans come back to their country and practice the old ways, but still you know ruled you know government and sort of try to to mix. Or do you think Tibetans just want? Their, their country back the way it was, like full independence. I don't really see that coming, but... I don't see that coming in the, sh in the short term either, frankly, you know. I mean, as I said, I was optimistic about it earlier. I, I don't, you know, there was a relationship between Tibet and the other, the rest of China, if you like, in the past. Some kind of relationship like that might be possible, but in terms of, you know, there are a lot of Chinese moving into Tibet right now. The Tibetan, the Tibetan-ness of that part of the world is starting to get diluted dramatically. That high-speed railway was opened after I traveled there from land. I'm glad it is. My, my friend who travels with me sometimes sends me emails. But 800,000 people, is that an exaggeration? Maybe not. 
have already traveled. What's that? If not more. This was, a, actually this was a month or two ago that she sent me this. Have already traveled by that railway into Tibet. That's a lot of people. 800,000 people. More, you know, more than a million. And already they're starting to build hotels and so on. I just got another email from her that a small lake, like a salt water, is like kind of a, a lake, is getting destroyed ecologically because hotels are being built around for tourists and they're dumping all of their waste and so on into, into this area. So inevitably what's happening is the influx of people, influx of tourists and so on, is starting to cause incredible environmental deficit. We're talking about two or three months since the building of this. Because the, the, the scale is shocking when you think about a billion people in China, right? You always, oh, global warming, what's going to happen when China holds this driving car? Well, yeah, I mean, you have a, a population of six million. So, so there are these kinds of concerns. The scale of, of, of Chinese involvement in Tibet is going to change the character of what Tibet was. And the, the Tibetan people, I think, at best you can sort of hope for a kind of a, a sense of recognizing. And to some extent the Chinese have already done this. I mean, after the uh, Gang of Four and all that stuff uh, took place, there's been a sense of, of reconciliation, of recognizing what has happened to some extent, what was destroyed and lost. But that needs to be brought more front and center. And it's interesting hearing people saying, gee, I don't know the history of that region very well. You know? Well, it's no, it's, that's not just incidental. You know? Countries tend to keep people from knowing. Sometimes you don't know what's going on in the country when you're in it. You think, well, I'm there. I should really know it much better than anyone else. I remember being in South Korea when President Park was assassinated, and we couldn't find any news about what was really going on. We tried to get Time magazine to find us from outside, and we get a Time magazine, and parts of it were blacked out of the black market, you know? So they actually meticulously gone and physically blacked out stuff on, on the magazine. You, you were listening to outside news to find out what was going on within the country. And that's partly the case, in, in, uh, unfortunately, in China. So we think it'd be a nation within a nation. Well, <laughs> I know, you know, all this time I was thinking, well, what about Quebec, right? Yeah. And uh, we have exactly the same kind of scenario happening here in some sense. Well, six million people. What's that? It's six million people. <laughs> there you go. Great, great similarity. So, yeah. that was my point too, actually. Um, why, why is it important? Because it would be the first cultural religion to die out in the history of human beings, and it won't be the last if, if they can't save their culture. Yeah. What's the importance of protecting these ancient cultures and, cultures and different traditions? You know, ironically, though, mean, ironically, I mean, and this is something that the Dalai Lama may have, have recognized as well, but the fate of what has happened to Tibet has meant that Tibetan Buddhism has gone from being an isolated tradition up there in the Himalayas and around Nepal and Sikkim and Bhutan to being world, world on the world stage because Buddhism was virtually wiped out of India. It's back in India now partly as a result of the Tibetan diaspora. Plus, the West is all aware of it, Richard Gere and all these, you know what I mean? Like, what we really have in some sense is a lot of people going, wow, Tibetan Buddhism. So, indirectly, it has actually started, it's like as if one thing has fragmented and you planted a hundred different little seeds worldwide. So, Tibetan culture may not ever return, perhaps, to its pristine place, its land, its homeland, and like we find with Palestine or, or Israel. But what ends up happening in its diaspora and its fragmentation, it actually ends up surviving. Why, why, what is the value of preserving things? I don't think you have to preserve them kind of out of a 
of a strange reification, you know, that this is something to... Because that's just like gathering dust in the museum with them. To me, it, it teaches us something about what it is to be human. That, that when someone writes a song, you know, someone plays a piece of music, somebody does a piece of art, and I see it, and it's different from what I have imagined, I'm somehow enriched. And for me, keeping these traditions alive and changing, because they're not just static things, somehow enriches, enriches all of us. To me, I'm about getting enriched. Materially, yeah, to some extent, but in other ways. I get, I get, I don't know. I don't know what it is to be alive, you know, and I'm discovering what, what life is. And part of what feeds me as a human being is learning from other people, learning what it is to be human. That's why I think we try to, to keep cultures alive rather than destroy them, wipe them out. There's also great strength in diversity. Diversity leads to creative insights. What? Diversity leads, as you said, you have to be out of something sometimes to recognize things. So the, the wider you preserve a diverse uh, culture and perspective, the more you have create chances for creative insight and perspective, both through complementary sharings and uh, classes between perspectives. It's a great insight. I fully agree. Because you get, you, it's like you're nourished from all these different sources, right? I mean, it's like, uh, you know, some of you, okay, I'm, I'm only going to eat, you know, lettuce. How, how nutritious is that, right? Why not eat from a whole range of different things? Why not feed yourself with all of the nutrients that human beings bring to it? So feed yourself, I mean, that's that thing. Out of all of that, sometimes comes new forms of creativity. The capacity to respond intelligently to, to what life brings to you in the future, right? So, so uh, is it safe to say that in the last hundred years there's been an assimilation of cultures? That on a global scale, there's less cultures, and we're not as distinct as we used to be maybe 500 years ago. But my access to those different cultures on an individual level is greater. So there may be less cultures and less diversity in the world, but my access to China and you know Nigeria and India. And to learn about those cultures has been greatly intensified in the last 50 years. So there is there is more input, but on a global scale, the numbers have gone down. My thoughts on that? Yeah, there's sometimes there's a kind of a homogenizing effect that's taking place, but that's not always true. Some people, you know, meld that's a big bugaboo. But human beings tend to isolate themselves again and generate new things. You know, hip hop cultures. You have microcosms of culture emerging all over all over the place. Uh, personally, and this is just a personal thing. I'm not about trying to keep all the old cultures alive and then have nothing else happen that's new, right? I, I see homogenization sometimes. I despair about it. But that's the only thing that's going to happen. Fortunately, we're creative enough at times to be able to generate new things out of it. i just like to see a certain kind of a, a healthy, sane appreciation of diversity, right? And to say, okay, look, you know, uh, I don't want the McDonaldization of culture and culture. I mean, to some extent, right? I mean, I, I want to go to to some part of the world and eat that food. I don't want to be eating the same foods that I eat here, there. Uh, I'd like to, in fact, eat that food here. And what I like about Canada is multicultural nature and so on. Uh, sometimes I go to India and I'm forced to eat just Indian food. Indian food, oh, yeah, there's a lot of diversity in our food. Yeah, there is, but really... They ain't, because I can't really get a decent Chinese meal here in India. You know, I can't get good Japanese food. But I can in Canada. I can't even in Alaska. Not Christmas. <laughs> kind of 
limited food choices and so on. But, but, and I'm being silly and being trivial when I say that, but to some extent there is that sense of, of I think, the processes of homogenization are always in some tension with diversity and so on. And as long as there's that kind of a, a natural, harmonious balance between the two, I'm okay with that. I don't, I'm not so fond of, of saying this is better than that, so let me just crush this out. You know, There's that sense that we sometimes have when we have imperialistic, superiority um, complexes of some sort. This is the better system. Pol Pot had that idea, you know? Many people have these ideas, and when we look at them in history, we suddenly go, oh man, was that misguided, or what? And that's being generous, right? It wasn't misguided, it was maniacal, and, 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 and horrible. So, yeah, we find, I find tolerance, moderation, in fact, Buddhism is good about that. It talks about the middle way, you know, a harmonious balance between things. That seems to be uh, eminently saner to me. I think on that note, uh, the quest for an eminently more sane approach to globalization <laughs> is what we've been talking about for quite a few weeks, and we're not going to meet again in this way. I'll probably see some of you in uh, the days ahead and wish you well with uh, the completion of your work. You, you want to say something more, Kaysan, or Oh, <clears throat> okay. Thank you. I think it's 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 on the uh, questionnaire. It's uh, yeah. It's Bev Garnett's office. It's women's studies, religious studies, liberal education. My office is C eight seven two. Off the top of my head, I don't know what what Bev's office is. Do you know? Do you know Hillary? What Bev? Bev Garnett's number.